Well, you know what I think. I'm a Christian. I'm not going to deny that. I do want everyone to feel comfortable. That's why I'd like to talk to you about Jesus. Please do not go religious. Somebody's going to hell over there. He better not. Even the devil will speak the truth for, for his own purposes. This is war. Accept it. Back to Jerusalem podcast. Yeah, I'm back and I'm armed with righteousness. With your host, Eugene Bach. He just seems like he's got it all figured out. He's a righteous dude. Yep. Hello and welcome to another Back to Jerusalem podcast. I'm Eugene Bach, your host for this time, and I'm coming to you live on delay from somewhere within the borders of Vietnam. And this is a special podcast series that we are starting right now. I hope that it will last for a period of several months. These are going to be stories directly from the front lines in Muslim nations where individuals are sharing their testimonies about how they are coming to Christ. This is a series that we are calling Miracles Behind the Veil. Miracles Behind the Veil is going to be a regular podcast series. I hope that we're able to do at least one every couple of weeks together with a dear friend of mine by the name of Banu. Banu is somebody that is not a stranger to the Back to Jerusalem podcast. She's somebody that we actually brought on from the very beginning. In fact, many of you that might be new to the Back to Jerusalem podcast may not know that in the early days, we started off with a podcast called The Tom and Eugene Show. The Tom and Eugene Show was a podcast that I did together with a good friend of mine that we worked together for several years inside of China. His name was Tom, and we traveled around and we did a podcast together, and we interviewed people like Bono. I remember we did a podcast together with her in Atlanta because she has a special story that you're going to love. How she's the only person in her people group, her unreached tribe, that became a believer. And the way that God moved in her life put her in a special position to be able to reach other people in the front lines of the Muslim world today. Banu, are you there? Yes, I am here. (laughs) It is so good to have you back. Thank you for joining us. I'm super excited to be sharing these stories together with you. And uh, right now, we are doing these podcasts over the phone. I hope that we will be able to do some of them in the future face-to-face. But Mm -hmm. you have an amazing story, not just your own story, but the story that you carry with you of the many women that you're speaking to on a regular basis that are coming to Christ. Um, right now, when people hear that you are, you know, you come from a Muslim background, many people think of, you know, the Middle East. They think of Saudi Arabia. Are you from the Middle East? No, I come from India. And, uh, people need to recognize that, that the most populated nation or the most, uh, populated Muslim people live in, um, Indonesia is the first top, uh, and the second one is Pakistan, third is India, and fourth is Indonesia. So these are the highly pop, uh, sorry, how do I say that? Highly uh, Islamic populated uh, people live in this area, not in Middle East, or uh, I don't know what number it is. Next is African countries, and then comes the Middle East. So... Um, yeah, the most a lot of people don't know that. I think that's really important to share. Most people do not know that most Muslims are Asian, not Middle Eastern. Though middle most Middle Easterners are Muslim, 
Most Muslims are not from the Middle East. Most Muslims are from Asia. As you pointed out, Indonesia is the most populated Muslim nation in the world. Number two, Pakistan. Number three, India. Number four, Bangladesh. So this is yeah. something that is really, I think, highlighted by the fact that yeah. uh, you are sharing, you know, from India. Most people, when they think of India, they think of, you know, Hindu, people that are of the Hindu religion, not Muslim. But it there yeah. are a lot of Muslims in India. Yeah. So majority, if you take 1.2 billion Muslims right now, so the majority comes from this nation, and that's the second biggest religion in the world. Um, we always forget about that, and uh, we just keep moving. Of course, we are called minorities in India, but definitely not a minority in the world. So yeah, and you that. have more Muslims in India than they have in Saudi Arabia. <laughs> yes, overall. So when you mention my people group, um, there are two, at least two million people in, uh, in the entire world. Or they are mostly uh, concentrated in the part of India, Africa, and Pakistan. And as far as I know, I'm the only convert and my sister came to the Lord. Other than that, there is no believers whatsoever, no gospel, because they try to stay in a very tight-knit community. We are called Maimans. It comes from the word, Arabic word, Mumin, that means a believer in Arabic. So uh, if it's a Maiman, it's a Muslim. If it's a Muslim, uh, then they all are uh, Mumins, you know? So it's very... So yeah. your people group has two million people. Your people group has two million people. Yes, at least. Wow, <laughs> two million people and two are Christian. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Wow. Can you believe that? I haven't heard anybody, anybody. They may be a nominal Muslim, but you know, like my father doesn't even read Arabic. But on any given day, he would die for Islam. So <laughs> they are very strong in their faith. They believe what they believe, and they will die for their religion. So, yeah, and I've been an outcast from that group because I cannot reach out to them. Banu, yeah. can you take us back and share mm -hmm. how you grew up in an mm -hmm. unreached people group and mm -hmm. found Christ? How did that happen? Okay. Um, let me start with the scripture, Isaiah 65, 1, where the Lord said, I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me to a nation that did not call on my name. I said, here I am, here am I. <laughs> so this is my story. Like, I did not ask. None of my grandparents knew. Um, it was we were like a clueless people. And uh, it all started, my family um, lived in the part of Gujarat, like my grandparents, great-grandparents and grandparents, they all lived. And uh, Pakistan and India were one and it got separated, um, you know, the partition that happened. So only then majority of my tribal group went to Pakistan and my grandparents, I don't know, they chose to stay back here. And there was a big chaos, if you look back in history. A lot of Muslim women 
they're raped and there was a very um, bad stuff that was happening in the north and there was no education whatsoever around the around that area when you see south india it's so different lots of missionaries have come they have worked there there are many schools and uh, when you see it it's so different so um people are different their culture is different everything is so different about south so my grandparents heard about that that there is a lot of opportunities in south so they moved uh from north to south with my mother and my uncle and everybody and when they came here with all the gold and everything <laughs> they did not know the language and they lost everything they were cheated uh you know some of they uh, some of them cheated them there was a burglary because my grandparents did not know what to do so my mother was uneducated and same thing happened with my father's side so he was not educated he didn't get an opportunity to get a um get a education because they moved from north to south all they have to do is work and eat but they made sure that i we all got educated because everybody in south the missionaries had done such a fantastic job eugene they established uh schools and uh Uh, there was so much like people were talking about schools and colleges everywhere they had a girls school so my uh grandparents and my mother they all felt very safe that i go to a girls school <laughs> so i want to i i cannot thank enough what missionaries do you know we don't see the results right there but it goes generations after generations so i was raised there and i went to a catholic school um it was called a convent and the discipline was very strong we were not allowed to talk to boys and that was the only thing that my parents allowed me to that was the only reason my parents allowed me to go to school so long story short i was studying but at the same time i was going to madrasa in india and uh, i was reading quran and fasting uh, learning to recite arabic oh here's a very interesting point i want to mention here all these four countries we mentioned yuji none of them speak arabic so we all recite arabic but we don't understand a thing <laughs> a little bit of meaning here and there of the main prayers but none of us spoke arabic none of us um knew what it meant whatever our authorities told us and it was always the best religion on earth you know like uh we were the best people group uh everybody was beneath us hindus christians everybody was beneath us the superiority is the first thing that comes into any muslim people so when you think everybody is beneath you you're not even ready to listen to them right like <laughs> because you have everything your religion is the best the most uncorrupted book is what you're having that was my thought and um and, and what you just said what you just said is so important that a lot of christians are not aware of that when islam is practiced in indonesia the prayers must be recited in arabic they cannot be recited in indonesian when they are recited in pakistan they must be recited in arabic not in urdu 
when they mm-hmm. are recited in any country, they have yeah. to be recited in Arabic. So the prayers are given in Arabic. The messages are preached in Arabic. The Quran can only be read in Arabic. Now, the Quran is in other languages, but you don't read it. A Muslim would not read it in their own mother tongue. They have to read it in Arabic because that is the language that it was given to Muhammad in. And so because of that, um, it is uh, considered to be uncorrupted because it maintains a singular language. Um, And one of the challenges that Muslims have with the Bible or with Christians is the fact that the Old Testament is written in a type of Aramaic or Hebrew, and then the New Testament is written in Greek. And because of these two different languages, and then also when we pray to God, when we pray to Christ, we don't pray to him in Aramaic. We don't pray to him in Mm -hmm. Greek. I mean, you do if you're from Greece, yeah. right? But we, we yeah. pray to him in our our own heart language. And so we connect with him in our own heart language. When we read the Bible, if the Bible is available, we read it in our own heart language. That is not allowed yeah. in Islam. So I think that that's really mm. good that you pointed that out. Yes, and we don't even call uh, the translation as Quran. The Quran has to be Arabic. The other things are called translation. Oh, so we don't good. even give, wow. give that uh, <laughs> that honor of being called as Quran, like people call it translation, you know. Um, so Because they, they think that you cannot bring that word of Allah in a right format to understand. And then if there are questions or anything, it is like the authorities have... Uh, can only interpret. You cannot make your own interpretation, even if it says like <laughs> uh, uh, Jews and Christians are, you know, uh, are like very filthy people or corrupted people or this or that. You cannot make your own interpretation because of the translation. You have to go to the authorities and the authorities will interpret to you. Oh, no, no, no. Allah didn't mean this way. Allah meant that way because Allah is so good. Blah, blah, blah. So, yeah. You cannot, there's no point that you take and read it. There's never, like, I don't even think that my family had a translation. It is One thing is very common, Eugene. I've been interviewing several women, like several Muslim converts from different, different language and background. Everybody was taught to recite the over and over and over again the Quran. Nobody was encouraged to understand or understand the heart of Allah or um, understand why they are doing what they are doing. Nobody is encouraged about that. And nobody knew that was even an option. They're slaves, so they obey what the authority says. So it it ends there. And, And one of the reasons, let me just throw this out here before we get to your testimony. One of the reasons why this is important is because there's a lot of writings in the Quran that that most people would like to hide. They would like to hide mm-hmm. the, the violent surahs, those that call for jihad. They would like to highlight the peaceful surahs, not realizing that the that the Quran is disjointed. It is not a it is not written in a um in, in on a timeline. Uh, it okay. is it is disjointed. So there are earlier parts that are talked about later, and later parts that are talked about earlier. But it's written in two yeah. sections. One is pre Medina. One is post Medina. Medina is the city where Muhammad was kicked out of um, 
of um, why am I forgetting the the name of the the city here? The Mecca. Uh, Mecca. Yes, thank you. Uh, so yeah. he was kicked out of Mecca and forced into Medina. And when he went into Medina, he was able to raise up a warrior group that allowed him to go back as a conqueror into Medina. And so prior to going to Medina uh, from Mecca, uh, he was very peaceful. And he had to be peaceful because he was a minority. You don't find out yeah. somebody is peaceful when they're in the in the minority. Because if, if they're in the minority and they're not peaceful, they can be squashed very easily. Yeah. You find yeah. out if somebody's very peaceful when they have power. If they have power to kill you and they choose peace, that means that is a peaceful person like Christ who could have called down yeah. the angels um, to, mm-hmm. to completely decimate the Romans. He chose not to. He had the power to, but he chose to give his life willingly. No man took it from him. He laid it down willingly. Whereas Muhammad, as soon as Muhammad had power, his days of peace were gone. And so uh, there's, there's those scriptures that people would like to hide, but it's not just those. The reason I'm talking about this is because in the news this month that we are doing this podcast, there okay. was an Indian born uh, author who is very well known around the world. His name is Solomon Rushdie. And he okay. wrote a book highlighting scriptures in the Quran that most Muslims try to hide. They're called the Satanic Verses where Muhammad was tricked by Satan himself to write down certain things about the three goddesses of Mecca. And he did that. And it says that he was okay. he was um, tricked by Satan. And so uh, this Salman Rushdie wrote about these, th- and this was back in 1988. And then just this month, he was stabbed. And they tried to kill him. It was it, it, Why? Because there were um, uh, death warrants put out on his life, uh, mainly by the Iranian government, the Ayatollah, uh, but also by Muslim clerics around the world that have wanted him dead since 1988. His book, which highlights uh, uh, the, the violent teachings as well as the satanic verses in the Quran, led to a fatwa which is a lawful order given by religious leaders to have him killed. So what you are talking about right now, I think is so essential for people to understand because uh, people don't realize why Muslims want to keep, or Muslim leaders, I should say, want to keep Mm -hmm. prayer and scripture in Arabic only. Yeah. And uh, what was interesting to me was that Fellow was not even born when the fatwa was <laughs> uh, was declared. I don't think that he was so in twenty something. Uh, can you say that again? Was he like twenty something? The the guy that uh, uh, tried to kill oh, yes. Salman Rushdie. Yeah. Yep, that's right. Yeah. So he was not even born. He was right? not even like born when the fatwa was declared. <laughs> yep, yep. No, you're absolutely right. In fact. If you go, there is a BBC program that you can find on YouTube where Mm -hmm. a couple of years ago, BBC wanted to go and find out from uh, Muslims who were British. So these are not Muslims that were born in another country. They were born and raised in in England. And they were Muslims Mm -hmm. that that had never heard of the Satanic Verses. They never heard of Ahmed uh, uh, Solomon Rushdie. They had never heard of his book called Satanic Verses. Right. And so they wanted to see, is the, is the younger generation just as 
um, I mean, I would say violent, but I think that they used a different word, just as passionate, you know, about their religion. <clears throat> but when they went out and they began to ask young people and they began to mm -hmm. talk about this book, immediately the news crews, BBC news crews had to run for their life. Because yeah. the, the reaction was violent. The young people didn't even know about this book. But once it was explained yeah. to them, the, mm -hmm. the reaction was visceral. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I've always seen, um, uh, as, uh, you know, like I'm interviewing many, many women. They have been Christians for more than 20 years, 25 years. They are on fire for Jesus right now, Eugene. And that was the time when the Muslim apologists were on top. There was nobody, like, I don't remember, like, a strong Christian apologist. There was no internet. But God's move has been so mighty in, uh, during that time frame, which we did not see. When I'm interviewing them, that's when, when I... I was thinking that was the darkest area in my mind. Oh, Lord, there's not many people who knew Jesus. But when I'm interviewing people, their God was powerfully moving in their midst. Some of them have been Christians for 20 years, 25 years, 23 years. And they all had supernatural encounters then. Like... Uh, all these things, we may think it as a negative, Eugene, but... You know, God works in a very miraculous way, and we are going to see a lot of stories coming after a few years. What because they might act violent in front of us, but all these things are going to. But they just go and ask questions. They uh, we are triggering them to ask questions. So, like nine eleven, if you see, there's been a lot of conversion after that. The Islam has been exposed. Um, Islam is being exposed. That's what I'm saying right now. I feel like Islam is being exposed. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't understand how rational people cannot see the blatant lies. I mean, nobody needs to be ignorant, right? We have the internet. We have access. You can read the Quran today online yourself in your language. Um, I've read the Quran uh, several times. I was taught about Islam from an imam, and we have more information at our disposal than ever before. But fear, fear keeps us, I believe, from sharing the truth. We want to parrot the uh, common phrase that Islam is a peaceful religion. Otherwise, we will be called Islamophobic. Uh, we can be accused of a hate crime. We can be accused of being violent. Basically, everything that that Christians feel in Muslim nations is what Christians are being accused of, which is really a, a stretch. Do Muslims go through some sort of persecution? Yes. In some, in some places, at certain times, Muslims unfairly are treated. However, um, the treatment that they have, I would rather be a Muslim in a, in a Christian country than a Muslim in a Muslim country. I would much, I would definitely rather be a Muslim in a Christian country than any other religion in a Muslim country. That I mean, that that is that is not even debatable. 
and anybody that would try to really has to do a linguistic dance to prove otherwise. And we can talk about this all day long. I think that every episode we will get a little deeper into Islam to educate the audience. But I think that the audience really would love to hear your story, Banu. I think that they would really love to hear how you became a believer. Yes. As you said, anybody can keep me ignorant. They can force me to be ignorant. They can tell me all they want. But God is not going to be quiet. So I'm so grateful for the Lord for bringing me into this salvation and opening my eyes. Um, Yes. All uh, whatever you're describing about Islam was true in my life. I didn't want to hear anything because um, nothing was true. Only Islam is true. Everything was corrupted. Only Quran was not corrupted. So why would I listen to people? And my uh, my prayers were were very direct to Allah. I didn't need any anybody in between. So all I had to do is um, ask forgiveness and I will be forgiven because Allah uh, was merciful. So he would all, if I did one good deed, I might get seven-fold benefits or 700-fold benefits or 10 times benefits. So all these things. So um, if there was a sin, all I had to do is fast, pray, and Allah would forgive me. So there was no need of salvation. There was no need of cross. There was there's nothing, you know, like I have a direct access. That's how I was taught. But at the same time, I was never like everything I pray because I am a slave of Allah. Uh, I have to be very submissive and he will give me if he chooses to give me. There was no, I cannot have a conversation but I should have in a submission, um, I should uh, petition everything in my submission. That's what, um, that's what I was taught. <laughs> so uh, when you grew up, uh, in a, uh, how religious were your parents? Uh, here's the thing, um, Eugene, they are I don't know what you describe as religious. They would pray five times. They would insist that I pray five five times. They all fasted during Ramadan. So I fasted during Ramadan. Um, they they made every like they their heart's desire was to go to Mecca because that's one of the five colors of Islam. So if you call that religious, it is religious. But when I was growing up, like slowly, I could see changes in my cousin, and they would come up with some different concepts that I had never heard before. Like, hey, why do you keep your girl child for so long? Because they were becoming Wahhabis. They were getting influenced by Saudi Arabian teaching. The girls are supposed to get married as soon as they get their puberty. That's what... Uh, uh, the Quran says, blah, 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 that's what is the Hadith. And all those things were foreign to me and foreign to my parents because uh, the new teaching started coming in and that was, start, that was promoted by Saudi Arabians. And my cousins and everybody was taught. Uh, and then they were um, expecting everybody to wear a full covering hijab 
back then I had to co- I had to do the full cover, you know, the clothing and stuff. But it wasn't like I had to cover my face or um, like that. So it started like they were. Uh, one of my friends said, like back in those days, we women we didn't have to go. Uh, to mosque, it was only men who went to mosque. But nowadays, the women are forced to go to mosque in um, in South India, and they take attendance. If they don't attend, they have to pay the fine. That is happening in a present situation. So things have changed since I grew up. But you know, the if you're not thinking, as we discussed, Eugene, if you're not thinking, if you're not allowed to think, if you're not allowed to question. Uh, after a point, you just become like that. And yeah. you just keep surrendering. And there's no option um, because there's no other way out. Uh, so I was like 15 or, yeah, 15, 15 and a half. So I traveled from South India to North India. It is a place called Rajasthan, which is, and there are many cities in Rajasthan, especially the city I went to is very, um, it's, a, it's a small town. It's not like a, it's like, not like a Jaipur or anything. It's like a small town and the education, there was no education. Um, the camels were standing <laughs> on the streets and uh, there was no running water and my aunts lived there. So I went to visit them. There's no books because nobody is educated. And in that house, I just saw um, a book. It, it looked like a comic book because of there's no book, there's no education. And I come from South and you see a book. So naturally uh, you just pay attention and just take it because that was something that I did not expect. And it was like a comic book, like the pictures all over. And uh, I asked my aunt, can I take this? Because it takes three days to go back to South India in a train. So she said, yeah, some foreigner gave it to me. I don't know what to do. I was just polite and <laughs> put it here in the shelf. Now I know that was a missionary that was obedient to the Lord and went all the way. I don't know from which country was she. Um, she just mentioned foreigner. According to them, the foreigner would be some white woman. I don't know. <laughs> That's what she meant when she told me. Uh, maybe an Australian, I don't know, or or some English missionary, I do not know. I travel here uh, from South India where there's so much freedom, so many books, to the place and there is no books, no gospel. It's still very dark. You can Google like how many percent of Christians are there in Rajasthan. It's very, very blessed. There's no Christian. Um, if you hear this persecution, um, of Christians, those places would be one of those places, you know, where you hear even now. So I take that book and I bring it in train because it takes three days. There was everything from Genesis to Revelation, a bits and uh, pieces of every book of the Bible with the picture. Uh, recently, somebody told me that was from the Good News uh bible club these pictures are from the good news that's what they said and i was so happy to find out at least somebody did that and i was just going through um the 
stories right from the beginning and uh, till the end. Ninety-nine percentage I did not understand, uh, but it was good read because there were lots of stories from Isaiah, from Genesis, from Jesus' miracles to Revelation, and and there was one particular story uh, where Jesus calms the storm, and he was sleeping in the boat, and disciples were afraid, so they just go and wake up. Jesus, and they were asking, you're going to drown, and you're sleeping, you know, that was probably their reaction. And so Jesus comes with storm and rebuked the disciple, asking, oh, you of little faith. But in Hindi translation, it said, you have no faith in me. If I had to literally translate the word, it is like, you have no faith in me. And I just closed the, uh, that comic book and I left it, I forgot. But for some reason, that word, you know, the word is life. And any problem, any problem, I'm a practicing Muslim, Eugene, just remember, I don't know anything about anything. Any problem in my life as a teenager, I have a very sheltered life. I cannot go out of the house. I cannot talk to boys. There was no cell phone. There was no, like, you know, friends can come to my house or I can go to my friend's house. No. Um, I go inside the school, then I'm being picked up, and then I go back to my house. That's all. My life ends there. There's no socializing, nothing. And I, and there was, whenever there was a problem, and I just go pray my all this Arabic thing as much as possible. I'm done with everything. At the end, I would hear, well, you still have no faith in me. And then I knew that word came from that book. And that was Jesus's word because I read it. So I would just secretly pray that prayer and things will start happening. And I tasted that, like, oh, every time I pray to that voice, I, things are happening. So that voice will speak to me, like, you have no faith in me. And then that, and I respond back to that voice, and I get faith. I, I don't know how that, I don't know how to explain. I get faith, and then things start happening. I have seen so many miracles, and this happened, like, for five years. Believe it or not, it was like five, five and a half years this thing was going on. And uh, and I was like, I was in college by then. And uh, all my friends were Hindu in the college. So there was no discussion or whatever. And then one of my friends, my best friend, ran away with a guy. And then there was a big problem that was going to raise, uh, arise because of honor and shame culture. And uh, I was so afraid. I'm like, Laura, Allah, help me. <laughs> and I'm praying and I was thinking that I need to commit suicide because the police is gonna to come to my door and my family is gonna be put in shame or whatever. Again, I hear a voice like, you have no faith in me. So I just pray that prayer, okay, help me. <laughs> Help me this time. Only this time. I made a bad choice about my friends. So help me. Um, 
And then after that, everything was solved. No, nobody came to my house. Everything was solved. And then I go back to college. And uh, all me, my Hindu... Can I, can I ask you just a question here? Yes. During your entire upbringing in a Muslim home, in a Muslim minority group, and everybody around you basically being Muslim in, in India, yeah. and of course having Hindu uh, friends, uh, because that is the majority of the mm -hmm. religious people in India is Hinduism. Um, yeah. Did you ever feel comfortable enough? Did you ever feel in any way that you could reach out and pray to Allah? to grant such a prayer request. Did did you ever feel like faith in Allah uh, and a relationship with Allah could help you in this situation? No, uh, I had uh, like a submissive thing, like, because inshallah is the word that you keep uh, hearing from Muslims where they say, uh, like, if Allah wishes, he will grant you your, your uh, prayer request. But here, I'm hearing a voice like you have no faith. And then I submit my prayer request. And what happens is I get some kind of a confidence inside of me. I don't know how that happened. I don't know how to explain. Uh, but it was like, for an example, uh, what happened is uh, I really did really, really bad in my math test. And um, I'm like, Lord, if my parents come to know this is the end of my education, again, I'm going to be trapped and they're going to get me married to some guy. I really don't want to get married right now. I just want to be free for a few days. And then I'm praying to Allah. Then I'm hearing the voice. Okay, you have no faith in me. And I prayed. It was very simple prayer, Eugene. It was like a childlike faith. Like there was nothing. Uh, I wasn't even thinking. But there was like immediately a faith would come and I knew at that moment my results were good. So I went there, my results were good. I don't know how to explain all those things. But once I prayed that prayer, there was something that would transform in me. The fear would leave and faith would come. And I am ready to face that situation because I knew that situation has already, I mean, I'm, I'm going to get the result what I want. So it happened for five and a half years. I have no explanation for that. It was between me and that voice that was speaking from that book. <laughs> That's what I know. And that is fascinating because the book really has so little influence. I mean, rationally. Let's think rationally for a minute, okay? Mm -hmm. You've grown up with massive influence from your family, from your society. Yes. You have expectations mm -hmm. from your culture from your religious background. Everything around you is teaching you about Islam over and over again. And mm -hmm. now you just have one train ride with a book and it's changed yeah. your life. Yes. Uh, it's louder than any other voice. And uh, when the scripture says, in the beginning, the word already ex uh, existed. The word was with God and word was God. <laughs> so word was God right there, isn't it? it? No matter it was a comic book, no matter it was like brought into a, into like it was a fragment of Bible, but that word was God, isn't it? That was a true word. God breathed scripture, isn't it? 
And that was a true story of what Jesus really did on the boat. And he did ask his disciple, like, you you of little faith. That, so that was, I mean, if that was not true, Eugene, how can that speak after 2,000 years to a person who is clueless about all these things? I did not know word was God. I did not even understand when they were talking about Kalimatullah or whatever. I did not know what it really meant. But now I know because that was. So let me tell you the story, how I figured out who was speaking to me. And after that, I go and all my Hindu friends were talking about this this man, Jesus. And they were talking, hey, my neighbor said this, my neighbor said that. I just heard about this man, Jesus, um, because uh, lots of miracles are happening when they pray. Have you heard about it? Blah, blah, blah. Everybody, they, not even one person, they are still Hindus, trust me, but they were speaking so that I could hear it. And I got very curious about it. And I said, oh, really? And <laughs> nobody knows what was happening behind me, uh, uh, behind the veil, like whatever is happening, nobody knows. I haven't shared with anybody. That was my little secret. And, uh, and then I think it was God's timing to reveal who he was. So everybody was talking about Jesus. Then I, my family was running a small-scale business, and I go back home, and my mom was very upset with one of the girls right there. She was very sweet, and she was very upset with that girl, and she said, you know, she became a Christian. She was a Hindu. She became a Christian. She was working in our small-scale factory. And I got excited, and I went and told her, can you tell me more about this, your conversion or your Jesus? I want to know uh, because I don't have anybody uh, to speak about Jesus or I don't know any concept. To me, he was a prophet. But here people are all talking about this man, Jesus, all of a sudden. And she said, uh, you live with your grandparents. There is a lady right there next to your grandparents' house. Why don't I introduce um, you to her? She will explain to you Jesus better than me. <laughs> Long story short, she was a Hindu priest wife, and she was a secret believer. Wow. Full of fire, full of prophecy, <laughs> full of Holy Spirit. And her husband would dance in front of idols, you know. So she would wake up three in the morning, four in the morning, and she would start praying. And uh, and I'm talking about the Indian house, not the American house. There's like one hall and then the kitchen and the house ends there. <laughs> and she has two children. So she has to wake up at that time to go and pray. So I go and she was full of love. And uh, she was like, what do you want to know? And all she said was, this Holy Spirit, God can talk. You know that? And it was, I don't know how to explain that moment. Like, all of a sudden, everything shifted. Like, I felt like all my scales, like that. <laughs> all moments, like, who are you, Lord? You know, kind of a moment, like, what? God can speak? 
And that's when I realized all along, for five and a half years, it was God who was speaking to me. She introduced me to the Holy Spirit. And that's when I, everything, I, I was able to make sense of everything that was happening for so many years in my life. Like, oh my goodness. He was the one who was talking to me. And he was patient with me for so many years. I did not recognize him. I did not acknowledge him. I did not pay attention to him. Once I got my things, I forgot about that voice. I, I had nothing to do about that voice. Still another problem arises. So I, and then I was so happy. I cannot explain that God can talk to a human being like you and me. You know, God can speak. Oh my goodness, God can talk. God can communicate. God can be relational. Everything started making sense. And the world looked so different to me. You know, like uh, there was no sinner's prayer. There was no condemnation. There was nothing. It was just love. I just, <laughs> I, I was like in love with this man, Jesus, all of a sudden because he was talking to me. And then it just became so close. Like we both became so close to each other. Like, oh, Jesus, are you listening to me? And I, I would get response, you know. And things started shifting. That's when um, the bright light started coming into my room. And uh, I didn't know what vision was. Everything just started happening right there. And after I invited him, after I I acknowledged that he was God. It was a song of Solomon moment for us. It wasn't like, and that sin or confession of prayer um, or guilt, nothing was there. Like, it was just love. It was just me and him. And all I wanted to do was just to talk to him. Um, I was still the same person. And my Muslim family, they just... <laughs> came and asked me, what happened to you? Why is your face so bright? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> um, so this is, this is such a powerful that. story. And, um, and this is why I'm so excited about this series that we're now working on because you have not just your own story that is, that, that is so rich and, and powerful, but you now also are hearing on a regular basis the testimonies, the personal testimonies of people that are, are in similar situations as you were in. And, and I think that it really highlights how God has called you, not just with the gifts that he's given you, but with the background that you have. And, and we're going to be talking more about your story in the future as it intertwines with the stories that we're going to be retelling that you come in contact yeah. with on a regular basis. Can you mm -hmm. just give us a, a, a little bit of an outline no, you don't have to tell us any of the stories, but kind of tell us about the regular meetings that you're having. These stories that we're going to be sharing in the coming months, where are yes. they coming from? How are you connecting with these women? Eugene, back in those days, you would hear about one Muslim convert here, one Muslim convert there. Now, they are everywhere. <laughs> everywhere like everybody like I feel like I, I, I have stopped having a count of them like 
initially I was so excited, but now it's like so many, so many. And with the technology, it's so easy to connect. And um, uh, they all are gathering together and they are all are praying together. So one of my friends had an idea or vision. Why don't we gather all the uh, Muslim women, you know, ex-Muslim women, and let's start praying with them. And so that's how it started. And it's like a tsunami. Like they just keep coming and coming. And like, and every story is so unique. Like, oh, oh God, Jesus healed of my cancer. And uh, I am an evangelist here. I'm a pastor's wife here. I'm a pastor. Like God has been silently working everywhere. So there are a lot of secret uh, Muslim women who... Uh, like one of my my favorite story would be uh, one of the women called me and said, "Hey, my husband has gone to Mecca. Can I share my story in this today because he has gone to Mecca?" <laughs> so, so some of them are really secret, and some of them just were so bold enough to get out of the house, uh, leaving everything. And to the, I, I mean, they went through the persecution so graciously. Some of them have been healed from cancer. Some of them had a supernatural encounters. Some of, but one thing is common, Eugene. God does not act alone. He needs his body to work mm, with him. Yeah. Every story I hear, every story I hear, one thing is very common is, Somebody took some kind of initiative and and then Jesus came through. Every story, there's like not even one story just out of blue Jesus appeared. Uh, like I'm talking about the stories I am collecting. Maybe in YouTube stories you can see somebody was sleeping and all of a sudden Jesus appears. But yeah. I'm talking these regular women, like hundreds of them that I'm connected to or um, I can see in the Zoom group like we uh, every month, at least 30, 35 uh, women would show up, or 25 at least, they would show up. And some of them joined from Saudi Arabia, and we take communion. Some of them could not go out of the house. They just take their uh, water and whatever bread they have in the house, and they start taking communion. And so there's like a variety. But every story I'm collecting, there was a body that is involved. Like for my story, there was some missionary who was obedient to go to that place where no missionary or no no foreigner would want to go. And uh, gave that book and to my aunt. That was obedience, isn't it? So if that book was not there, I don't know how God would have approached me. But there is some kind of, uh, I don't know who prayed for that book. I don't know who paid for that book. I don't know who did that artwork or wrote those words. Uh, I do not know. So, Well, uh, these are stories that we're going to be opening up and sharing uh, more and more. I think that they're going to be really powerful testimonies that have never been told before in any other format. These are going to be stories that I think are encouraging because of what you just said, which is there might have been a few years ago a few Muslims coming to Christ, but now it seems that the floodgates are opening up, at least in the parts where you have been exposed. And I think this should yeah. be encouraging 
for Christians around the world for this main reason. Matthew 24, 14 tells us that when all of the nations have heard the good news of the kingdom, then the end will come. 100 years ago, the majority of Christians, over 90% of the world's Christian body, lived in Europe and America. Today, 60% of the world's Christian body lives in Asia and Africa. That is a massive shift in only the last 100 years. And that number in Asia and Africa that are following Christ is growing more and more. And we may not have the data. We may not have the, the academic research in order to prove what we've just said. However, we can see evidence. And that's what these stories are going to be sharing. You're going to be sharing stories from the front lines of people that are breaking free from the bondages of generational religion and stepping into the light and freedom of Jesus Christ, taking the very same journey, Banu, that you have. So I'm really looking forward to this. We're going to start doing these recordings um, every week, you and I, and then we will play these about uh, once every two weeks for the next coming month. So for you that are the Back to Jerusalem listener, we are really excited to be sharing these stories for the very first time. I pray that they bring motivation to you as well as encouragement to keep pushing the Great Commission so that we can see the, the completion of the kingdom message going around the world into the most unreached people groups, people groups like Banu's people group. Banu, I want to thank you so much for joining us on this Back to Jerusalem podcast, and I'm looking forward to this Miracles Behind the Veil podcast series. Thank you, Eugene, because what they told me is like, we cannot go out. Like, why don't you take our stories? You cannot keep Jesus' story inside. Can you share the story to the world on behalf of mm, us? And it. some of them have language barriers that they cannot speak English. So they are so happy to bring the story to you. Thank you so much for awesome. giving us an opportunity to share it to the world, what Jesus has done. Amen. And I want to thank you so much for listening to this Back to Jerusalem podcast. I pray that it is as much of a blessing for you as it has been for me. Again, I'm Eugene Bach, your host for this time, coming to you live on delay from somewhere within the borders of Vietnam. God bless you. <laughs>